This is WexCast from the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University. For this episode, we're sharing a November talk by Elizabeth Weiser about the work of Jenny Holzer. The Ohio State Department of English professor explores the language Holzer utilizes in her series of truisms and inflammatory essays, on view as part of the fall exhibition here, Anne Hamilton, Jenny Holzer, Maya Lin. She also touches on the reactions they spur and how a museum setting provides important context for the words Holzer initially wheat-pasted on the streets of New York City. And Weiser discusses the work in relation to her most recent book, Museum Rhetoric, Building Civic Identity in National Spaces. Weiser is introduced by our educator for public and university programs, Alana Ryder. Let's listen. Um, I'm delighted to welcome Elizabeth Weiser here today, who teaches rhetoric, composition, and creative writing at Ohio State's Newark campus. Her most recent publication, Museum Rhetoric, Building Civic Identity in National Spaces, explores the formation of national identity in museums in 22 countries. Astoundingly, Elizabeth traveled to six continents to study over 60 national heritage museums for this 2017 book. We need to get it for the bookshop, I think. Um, closer to Ohio, she just completed a collaborative book chapter with a geographer and an American Indian studies scholar on the heritage status of the Newark earthworks. Um, in an interview this past April, Elizabeth described her research at the intersection of the real and the aesthetic, and having much to do with public memory. Thank you in advance for guiding us through Jenny Holzer's works today. Thank you. And actually, as a rhetorician, I deal a lot with words. I have words. I would actually suggest that you kind of take a seat for a bit, or you're going to—you'll be standing a lot otherwise. <laughs> Planning to talk. Um, about Holzer's work, but in the context of a, a bigger kind of um, a bigger picture about what museums are are doing these days, and particularly the kinds of museums that I've been looking most at, which is heritage museums. So, um, and the way that rhetoric ties into that, and uh, yeah, and then the way that Holzer's work ties into that. And so we'll start mostly talking about Holzer's work. Um, kind of move over to rhetoric, back to Holzer's work, give some examples from other museums around the world that uh, are doing a similar kind of, of, the, of polyphony that she's doing, and then um, and back up with Holzer's work at the end. So uh, rhetoric, for if people are not familiar with our field, um, broadly speaking, is the way we use language and the way that language uses us. Um, so you can see, I think, the connection between rhetoric and Jenny Holzer. Uh, ironically, we in rhetoric also look at the way that symbol systems, which is kind of like thinking of language writ large, um, are used and are used by us. So there are rhetoricians who can capably discuss Anne Hamilton or Maya Lindsworth. Um, mostly, I just admire it. I tend to deal mostly with words. Uh, and the system that I study the most is museums, especially cultural heritage museums. Things like the Museum of American History, the uh, Museum of the American Indian, or here in Ohio, the uh, National Underground Railroad Freedom Center. Those kinds of museums. So in my book, I look specifically at national heritage museums around the world for how they reflect and also shape a, a communal narrative, a communal national identity by the way that they talk about heritage events. Um, my work looks at the way that texts and objects 
the words and the visuals interact within the planned architectural space to induce the reader toward a particular kind of communal identity. This identity development isn't a one-way street. Uh, visitors also bring with them their own expectations and experiences, uh, the identity that already lives inside their heads, and the communal stories and the objects that they expect to see in a museum. A lot of what I look at then is the balance between visitors and museums that together, from the heritage of the past, reinvent a vision of the present public self that sets the parameters for what communities think that they can or cannot do in the future. In other words, uh, who, we, who we think we are is a determiner of the kinds of actions that we think are acceptable or desirable for us to take. Uh, for instance, are we a nation of immigrants or are we a nation under siege by immigrants? The two different visions of our communal identity identify, um, drive much of the current debate over immigration policy. A museum that wants to promote one of those visions cannot just harangue visitors who believe the opposite. They have to find, in Aristotle's phrase, the available means of persuasion to get all visitors to consider what it means that the community sees immigrants in different ways. They may also want one vision of the issue to motivate visitors emotionally enough to take action about it. So the Underground Railroad Museum and uh, Freedom Center, for instance, in Cincinnati, wants to motivate visitors not just to learn about uh, slavery and abolition in the 19th century, but also to think about and act on the contemporary issue of human trafficking. And they do that in part by implicitly arguing that if we as a nation thought slavery was wrong enough to do something about in the 19th century, then uh, we as a nation should want to do something about trafficking today because it's another form of slavery. So Aristotle was defining rhetoric when he said that it was the art of determining in each particular instance the available means of persuasion. And it's this continual process of determining the available means in the world's museum that I find so, so fascinating. Um, much of rhetoric considers agreeability as a necessary trait of persuasion, and I believe that studies still show, even today, that haranguing people we consider opponents does not in the long term produce noticeable change. But agreeability doesn't have to mean capitulation or conformity to the status quo, and this is again where museums have been so fascinating. Exhibits can be troubling, even disturbing. They can challenge our unconscious beliefs. But if they make us walk out, or worse, not even come, then they're not being persuasive. They're not reaching their public audience. So what to do about Jenny Holzer? Um, there was actually a fascinating review of her work last spring in the Washington Post that Alana sent me. Alana sent me. <laughs> um, the review itself was so inflammatory that the reviewer could well have been paid by me to illustrate the title of my talk. What if all this course today is an inflammatory essay? So I want to quote some from the review and then some from the comments that the review elicited here. Uh, the reviewer himself, even less of an art critic than I am, was Mark Dyson, a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the former chief speechwriter for President George W. Bush. During what I imagine was his vacation, he happened into the Holzer retrospective at the Guggenheim Bilbao. 
this traumatic experience caused him to opine in an editorial that, quote, a museum has turned itself into an instrument of anti-U.S. propaganda. The first Pulitzer inflammatory essay that he happened upon was titled, The End of the USA. <laughs> if rhetorical persuasion involves starting from where the audience is to move them to where you want them to be, suffice it, suffice it to say that this is not where one may start with Dyson. He missed the point of Holzer's work, the juxtaposition of multiple voices, noting instead only the multiple translations. He says, the posters are helpfully translated into Basque, Spanish, French, and German, so that visitors from many lands can take in Holzer's sentiments and, according to the Guggenheim, consider the necessity of social change, propaganda's potential to manipulate the public and the conditions that attend revolution. The museum, he decides, one owned by an American foundation, no less, uh, by staging a retrospective Holzer's work, quote, is spreading calumnies against the men and women of the US military and fueling hatred of America in a foreign land. How dare it. Dyson's clear, clear lack of understanding of what he was looking at, much less the role of art or museums or the Guggenheim itself, can be laughable. Um, Holzer could take this review and turn it into another inflammatory essay. But the comments in response to his piece could be inflammatory essays in their own right. For instance, and these are the comments that came out in the Washington Post after the, the article came out. So the comments include KG and Oregon, who was liked by 143 people, who says, I'm sure Mark would like to control who should show their work and what they should, they should say. I guess he'd like to replace Jenny Holzer with some Robert E. Lee statues. Maybe some Nazi paraphernalia. You know, good people on that side. Damn the Rebels, liked by liked 197 times, says, who cares, Mark? Why shouldn't Spain have such a museum when the President of the United States spreads hatred and incites violence against everyone in the world who speaks Spanish? Is this how you try to change the subject from the crime, corruption, vulgarity, cruelty, hatred, incompetence, theft, and lies emanating from the White House for the past two and a half years? Give it up. Go peddle your poison pablum to the brain-rushed zombies who worship your Fuhrer. Anyone who has half a brain left is totally sick of it, and you and your Fuhrer. Or, short and sweet, disogyny liked by 55 people, Torture Boy is upset that all that people call him out for his evil. So, Kenneth Burke, a founder, I would actually say the founder, of modern rhetorical studies, about whom I wrote my first book, was used to these sorts of impassioned, contentious debates. He went through the culture wars of the, 19th, of the 1930s as the primary theorist of the Popular Front, that broad coalition of artists and intellectuals who supported communist ideals but not necessarily the Communist Party. He had modernist friends who felt keenly that art should exist for art's sake, and he had activist friends who felt equally keenly that art should exist as a social weapon. Each side felt that the other was not only wrong, but destructively wrong, with ideas that would harm not just art, but society itself. We can recognize their angst today, I think, in so much of the how should we respond debates in both academic and museum worlds. Burke responded with what he called falling on the bias between the art as art and the art as weapon camps, insisting that good art could be a teaching tool, a heuristic, toward a vision of a better society. The mutual incomprehension about the motives of the opposition that swirled all around him 
Burke called seeing the world through the tragic frame, an energizing but often dangerous form of storytelling in which all good rests with one side and all evil with the other. Burke's theory response to this was the comic frame, uh, which, about which he wrote, human enlightenment can go no further than in picturing people not as vicious, but as mistaken. When you add that people are necessarily mistaken, that all people are exposed to situations in which they must act as fools, that every insight contains its own special kind of blindness, you complete the comic circle, returning again to the lesson of humility that underlies great tragedy. If everyone's perspective is necessarily limited, then opponents are not innately evil, they are tragically mistaken people who are blind to their own blindness and whom we might help to view events through a wider frame. But humility is also necessary. If everyone's perspective is necessarily limited, then our own perspective, right as it seems, is also limited. We are also fools, also blind to our own blindnesses. Now, by saying this, Burke was not advocating the need to justify reprehensible actions or indulgent self-criticism about our own opinions. Um, we can go on thinking that our views are right, he said, so long as we understand that we can never really have the whole picture, that the world is not going to bend itself to, our, to the force of our will, and that the only way to move another person toward what we sincerely believe is a vision of a better life is not to write them off as evil idiots if they happen to disagree with us. The invitation to rhetoric, Burke wrote, happens when you put identification and division ambiguously together so you cannot know for certain just where one ends and the other begins. And this, I would argue, is the role of Holzer's inflammatory essays. If you want, we can wander upstairs and look at the inflammatory essays. Continue on. You can feel free to read the walls while I talk. It's a... uh, so I would argue that this is the role of Holzer's inflammatory essays. Put on display like this, the essays celebrate ambiguity, the poetic response to a tragic situation. How do they do this? Each essay, as Thyssen noted, is by itself a very strong statement. I'm trying to find the one I'm, I'm quoting here. This is, the, I think, the end of the USA. All you rich fuckers, see the beginning of the end and take what you can while you can. You imagine that you will get away with it, but you've shit in your own bed and now you're the one to sleep in it. Or, fear is the most elegant weapon. Your hands are never messy. Panic drives human herds over cliffs. An alternative is terror-induced immobilization. Or, I just saw this one, shriek when the pain hits during interrogation. Reach into the dark ages to find a sound that is liquid horror. Or, don't talk down to me. Uh, don't be polite to me. I'll cut the smile off your face. Holzer is not pulling the punches here. Yet, of course, the point, and the point that Thyssen missed, is that these are not her punches. Her series is not a personal manifesto, but a curated polyphony of manifestos, many voices in discordant chorus playing off of each other. As she herself has said, alone some of them would be completely irresponsible. A recent editorial, so is all discourse now inflammatory essays. A recent editorial in the journal uh, artsy.com opined that the way in which one essay admits to vengeance while another condemns the concept 
makes the series seem Trumpian in its ability to publicly counter its own beliefs. Another article also comparing the essays to our president says that Trump's speeches resemble the freewheeling incoherence of the essays and the contradictory rhetoric of the truisms. I'm not here to analyze the president's speech patterns, but I would question the words freewheeling incoherence and contradiction in regards to Holzer's work. I would say that she is instead playing with polyphony and juxtaposition, two important qualities of the comic frame. When Holzer first posted her inflammatory essays on walls all around New York City, Walter Cronkite was still telling nightly news visitors, I just remember this, Walter Cronkite was still telling nightly news visitors, and that's the way it is. A generation prior, this comfortable sense of knowing the truth, Burke thought, was the consequence of an effort to make language neutral, invisible, the mere container of information. For Burke, this neutrality was a, a re refusal to deal with the language of everyday life which was full of endorsement or exhortation, like, let's make it this way, or we should do this. Instead of trying to ignore or codify the moral force of language, Burke advocated what he called poetic naming. Poetic naming plays up the ambiguities of the various attitudes attached to words by, quote, heaping up all these emotional factors, playing them off against one another, which I think you can definitely see in Holster's work. Uh, in Burke's view, emotional poetic language was not irrational or full of freewheeling incoherence, but instead was an inevitable part of the human experience and a heightened, focused version of everyday communication. In other words, we all speak in contradictory truisms and inflammatory essays because that's what humans do. So if the world today sounds like a series of inflammatory essays, Perhaps that is because all of the world no longer believes that one person can truly tell us, and that's the way it is. Holzer's work may have originally needed to assert the polyphony of emotional voices, but now it's holding up a light to them, reminding us in our inflammatory times that no one has all of the truth. As the gallery guide, the one that's right down there at the base there, um, notes, Holzer provides in her text-based artworks a space for the viewer to reflect on inspirational and challenging content. Her works are as vital as ever, resonating profoundly within our social media age of the double tap like and public discourse carried out in 280 characters or less. It then goes on to say, they express a slice of our existence, the politics of the here and now at one precise moment in time. But I would point out that her work is not mere reflection of our times, it is self-evidently more timeless, for one thing, uh, and it is also more curated than the chaos of the Twitterverse, and therefore it's less embroiled in the tragic frame of only right and wrong, good and evil. So I would say that Holzer speaks to our times with an expression not simply of polyphony, but also its partner in the comic frame, the juxtaposition of those polyphonous voices. The juxtaposition can be a cacophony of angry opponents, or it might be curated, recognizing that each to some, is to some degree blind to its own blind spots. So here, somewhere, we have one essay saying, oh, it's right there, destroy superabundance, starve the flesh, shave the hair, expose the bone. While the one next to it, yes, um, counsels, you might as well stay drunk or shoot junk or be a crazy fucker. Which of these should we believe? Which does Holzer want us to believe? Alone, as she said, some of them would be completely irresponsible. 
expressed graphically the, uh, the power of the essays, like that of the truisms, lies not only then in the words on the page of any one of them, but in a way in the lines between the words, um, the edges of the colored paper, or the white spaces between the truisms, the marks of where we're supposed to read them as keeping up all these emotional factors, playing them one off against the other. Uh, the, gu the guide for the Bilbao retrospective includes the following reflection from Holzer, and the translation from Spanish is mine. Actually, I believe this is actually the, the Bilbao's translation into Spanish of something else. Um, so this is doubly translated, and it's probably not what she said at all. But something like, when we're talking about a poster on the street, I offer what can work in a few seconds. There are phrases that are complete messages that you can assimilate instantly, but if someone wants to stop for more time, there's an entire series where these three-second phrases appear, and that is a little more complicated. Pondering the phrases together for longer than three seconds, finding the complications, is the special gift uh, that occurs when works move from the street into the museum. So that musealization of the works, I would say, is about so much more than just mere conservation. Um, this time-slowed pondering of the whole, however, is not the way that I saw many people reading the inflammatory essays the night of the gallery opening. Um, they did more like what I think I myself would do if I hadn't been thinking about it a lot. They kind of skimmed along the wall like this, and they're reading, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. And then they see something that really speaks to them. And then they stop, and they take a picture, and then they read it again. And then they move on, skimming up the ramp to my own. Mark Thyssen seems to have done the same thing. And the same individualized selection happens with the truisms. You can buy any number of these truisms separately in museum gift shops as well as on site, online, on sites like Redbubble. And I can say that having looked this up in order to uh, make sure that that's true, I now own a Jenny Holzer Truisms t-shirt. Um, <laughs> but you can buy one single truism because it speaks to you. And so, as with any commonplaces, some of the truisms speak strongly to our experience and values, and others do not. But that's just it. Alone, they're a commonplace, uh, a meme. We pick the ones that we already believe, and we ignore the rest of them. Put together in the museum, they invite us to slow down and think more deeply about the commonplaces that we take for granted all around us, and therefore the lenses with which we unconsciously view our world. Their very abundance should also remind us that those lenses are different for each person. So it's no surprise that others' perspectives, the way that they view and name their world, are different from our own. This is the special role of a museum. I think this is how museums persuade. Burke lived in a time when people who were absolutely convinced that they were right, and we would look back and say that they probably were right, about economics, about fascism, about the need for action to prevent war, they lamented that the masses did not change their views after having the truth explained to them. The masses did not act in their own best interests. This should sound familiar to us. Rhetoric's insight is that even strongly held and vociferously debated facts are not enough to convince people to change their worldview. They have to be persuaded. And Burke's persuasive method he called perspective by incongruity. 
With it, he recognized that the first step lay in convincing people that their own perspective, their way of naming the world, was not unique, but it was one among many options. But this realization could only happen, he thought, when their and our subconscious ideas and beliefs are, to quote Nietzsche, who was influential in Burke's thought on this, <laughs> to, uh, thrown into confusion and then put together ironically, forging the alien, separating the familiar. When Holzer's work is displayed in a single space of a museum, this ironic juxtaposition of our subconscious ideas is physically and architecturally instantiated. We're forced to confront the irony of all of the positions that are represented. We may not necessarily like that. Um, we might just, we might not even think that we're, you know, going through this whole process of having our perspectives turned ironically upside down. Um, we're just here for pleasurable edification. A few years ago, I worked in a European museum's research project, and we found that the visitors resist the idea that their own identity is being changed by their experience with the museum. We thought in part because, unlike scholars, they don't view themselves as co-creating the reality that they're experiencing. Visitors want to see the museum narratives as truth. But truth is always partially constructed by us. Our words and our stories, like our identities, are what they are because of our social setting. We may resist to some extent, just like the people who found the one essay they liked and ignored the rest, or the, you know, the one truism that's on your mug or your t-shirt. Um, but the polyphony of narratives might also work to inform each other, influencing the relationship between the engaged museum and the engaged visitor. So I wanted to give you, since, like I say, I deal with heritage museums, I wanted to give you a few examples from beyond the art world. If we want to like sit down on chairs, we can sit back down on benches. Don't, don't. So I'm going to give you three quick examples here. Um, actually, oh wait, that's Jenny Holt. Just in case you didn't know what Jenny Holzer's work looks like, I have. I actually made a slide of that. Um, so when I was, this is the. Shameful plug for book. This is my book, Museum, <laughs> Museum Rhetoric. It's like Museum Rhetoric, right? And I went to um, quite a number of museums in places around the world. Everywhere from, let's see, that's the Czech Republic. There's Australia there, Thailand, India, Peru, Mexico, Rwanda, various places. And so, this idea of modern museums trying to, to influence the way that, that nations thought about themselves um, without going so far beyond where the nation itself is that people resist that, uh, and how that in fact plays out. I, I, I just kept seeing this happen in various ways. So, the first example is um, the Nordica Museum, the National Museum in Stockholm, Sweden, where when I was there, there was a special exhibit on the Sami peoples of Sápmi, which uh, is the northern part of Scandinavia, which you might think of as Lapland. But they asked, they spent a lot of time asking questions like, whose history is this? So they were really trying to say, 
we're telling you the history, but really, is it the history? Start to think about like what's really, you know, there are different ways of telling the story. Who's telling the story? Why are we telling it this way? And so, for example, in their exhibit on the Sami peoples, they had uh, a carved wooden seti, which is a sacramental object that would have been placed at a special or sacrificial site kind of out in the tundra. And the Nordiska included in the, it's this exhibit something that it had removed from its original location about a century before when it was going out, you know, just like, ha, ah, look, there, let's collect things, right? Um, but it also included in its signage comments from a Sami exhibition reference group that both explained and critiqued the objects that were displayed. So about the city, the comments that sat right underneath it said, <clears throat> who assumed the right to desecrate the Sami's sacred places? I hold them in great respect and would never think of removing anything. A city unquestionably raises issues of morality, ethics, and questions of repatriation and preservation. And critical words for the museum that were juxtaposed alongside the city itself, which yet remained there, not returned to Sami, but instead enclosed in a vitrine. The museum neither acknowledged nor denied the city's sacred status, leaving visitors to question their own unstated expectations about what should be piously worshipped and what should be piously musealized. I think of similar debates between museums and indigenous peoples across the Americas and the negotiated actions that are resulting. Viewed from the tragic frame, one of the actors in the SETI debate, the Nordisco or the Sami, are always right, um, morally right, and the other side is always wrong, stupid, or evil. Viewed from a comic frame, the only tragedy is the potential for blindness on both sides, and so there's room for continued engagement and mutual persuasion. They can continue to talk, they can come up with a solution to this. Um, ideally, Burke writes in a letter um, to a friend back in 1936, I think, um, all the various voices are partisan rhetoricians whose partial voices competitively cooperate to form the position of the dialogue as a whole. I think of this actually in comparison to uh, an, a, a conference I was at in South Africa some years back where um, there was a panel, and one of the speakers was from the Belgian museum that represents, the, that, that has a lot of artifacts from the Belgian Congo, and I forgot what, well, it's not the Belgian Congo, but that's how, that's when they collected everything, right? Um, and he was all like, yes, progressive ideas and all of these things, and inclusivity and all of this, and somebody said repatriation, and he was like, okay, we're, I'm, we're done, I'm not gonna talk about this at all. You know, we've got it, that's the end of conversation. And so you think, well, okay, we can see that from the American perspective with, with um, NAGPRA and, and, and repatriation, it kind of makes sense, well, you give it back. But they're still in conversation, so they need to continue to be in conversation. Um, a second example is from the Te Papa Tangarewa Museum, the National Museum of New Zealand. Looks like. This is the Treaty of, back there, this little thing there is the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, surrounding it are the speaker pools I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk about in a sec. Um, the uh, Treaty of Waitangi is an 1840 agreement between the British Crown and Maori chiefs. Um, it was largely ignored, just like, like any treaty, uh, largely ignored as soon as the Maori signed it, uh, 
by the British government for the next century, but it has been used since the 1970s as a, um, a template to, to redress breaches of Maori rights. And in modern New Zealand, it's assumed the role of a foundational document. People learn about it in schools. It's the foundational document now. Um, but its purpose in the modern nation is still a matter of debate. The treaty, therefore, is surrounded by these speaker polls that are, that are playing diverse voices debating the treaty. Some voices praise it as transformational to New Zealand society, while others are deeply critical and wonder if society has gone too far. Their divergent presence ask visitors who are, come to see it then to think about the role of the treaty in modern society. And again, it has a very prominent display place in the museum. So the museum itself is clearly um, holding it up as this is, this, is the, the, this is new New Zealand, essentially. But it's allowing this, this story to be debated within the museum that is celebrating these points of national commonality. And so it means that debate is not seen as antithetical to nationhood. What divides can be discussed. And so the work of persuasion is ongoing. And it seems like, well, okay, does that, again, should it be debated like that? I just actually finished an article for a museum publication in China asking me to write about the future museum. And I included the Treaty of Waitangi. I actually included this sentence, that I, the idea of um, what divides can be discussed, that debate is not seen as antithetical to nationhood. And I thought, this plays out differently in China. You know, once they translate it into Chinese and it goes into, the, into their publication, it's like it's going to play out differently than the way that I'm thinking of it myself, right? And finally, the Peruvian National Museum for several years held a really wonderful photo exhibit on their 20-year dirty war against the Sendero Luminoso guerrillas titled Yuyana Pak para recordar, to remember. It was set up by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and was one of these astounding exhibits that I think we would be hard-pressed to do, I think, in the U.S. because each sector of Peruvian society was depicted as victim, as perpetrator, and as implicated bystander in what it called the devastating internal violence. For instance, uh, indigenous women were depicted being rescued from Sendero camps and supporting the guerrilla war and crying over their slain relatives in morgues and hoisting arms in pro-government auto-defense committees. The police and the military heroically defuse a bomb in this picture and in the next picture here are ripping a man from his screaming family. The upper-class Lima residents, who would have been the audience, for, most of the audience for this exhibit, are shown very sympathetically as terrorized by late war bombs, and they're chastised for ignoring the war in the more rural areas for decades. Leading up to a, a life-size picture of Abimael Guzman, the Sendero leader, who was captured, he's in his prison clothes, he's kind of, there's, he's behind bars, this full-scale picture, but leading up to it is a series of placards arranged on pillars one pillar says that they can, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission sees, considers Sendero to be the immediate and fundamental cause of violence. Then the placard on the next pillar reflects on the social causes for the uprising in the chronically neglected indigenous areas. Um, a third pillar concludes that the war reinforced pre-existing authoritarian and repressive practices in the police and torture and improper detentions acquired a massive character. With which of these lenses are we then to look at Guzman? All of them. And in fact, while we're looking at Guzman on a pillar here, you, 
can, the way that the exhibit is set up, you can also see the shell of a Lima building blown up by Sendero, and you can see uh, the organization of the families of those who, who disappeared in police custody. The possibility of any one group being solely perpetrator or solely victim was mitigated by the careful juxtaposition of artifact, space, and dialectical text. And so visitors were invited to look both more intimately and also more expansively at their own remembered public history. As you can see, I hope the poetic methods of polyphony and juxtaposition have many functions beyond the art world, and the museum goals of persuasion to new ideas via perspective by incongruity go beyond museum doors. Persuasive museums may tell a story that has multiple points of view, that includes both high and low points in public history, and that embraces the ambiguity that we expect of modern storytelling. All of these tactics ask visitors to think rather than merely demanding their allegiance. Sometimes um, museum professionals and the communities worry that there's too much ambiguity, and they wish to assert either that the old story's always been right or the new story is vastly superior. But I would argue that such one-sided assertions only convince the people who already believe them. And so in rhetorical terms, they are persuading no one. Um, what is more persuasive is asking people to think about alternatives. And I could have talked about this whole debate going on in museums right now, but I'm going to ignore that completely to say, to come back to Jenny Holzer. So Holzer's inflammatory essays remind us that raising difficult ideas together by first bringing into the open the unconscious assumptions that guide all of our limited worldviews and then reconstructing them together in new ways is not a neutral process. It's emotional, it's contradictory because humans are involved in it, and that's how humanity works. As my former English department colleague Henry Cole states in the gallery guide, Quote, I'm grateful for the splendid unpleasantness of Holzer's work. We have the defiant ugly truths, the paradoxes, ironies, contradictions, understatements, and the devastating indictments that Jenny Holzer explores in her art. I would say a similar thing about museums in general. That big debate right now in the museum community is this whole, what is the definition of the museum? Are they nonprofit institutions in service to society and its development? Or are they democratizing inclusive and polyphonic spaces for critical dialogue? And then there's a whole lot of other words that go along with that. They might be either one of those. They might be both of them. They might be something else entirely. The old commonplace um, says that museums are safe spaces for unsafe ideas, polyphonic ideas that ask us to consider the juxtapositions in our own thinking within a space that persuades us to ponder the nature of our communal values. So a final reviewer of Holzer's Bilbao retrospective, um, one with a greater knowledge of what they were actually looking at than Mark Thyssen, summed up her exhibit, noting, the exhibition seemed to have an effect on those who've managed to see it. On the days I visited, visitors were noticeably more serious and reflective than typical museum goers. They were being asked, we are all being asked, many times in museum exhibits to stop and think in more complex ways. Sometimes we don't like it, sometimes we don't get it. I certainly know that I don't get it many times, including for this non-art professional, uh, many times here at the WEX. But the museum makes me stop and think. It gives me the space, physically and mentally, to be okay with not getting it immediately, 
and to become more reflective about our world if we accept the invitation to do so. That was Ohio State Department of English professor Elizabeth Weiser discussing the work of Jenny Holzer. For more information about our exhibitions and all things WEX, go to wexarts.org. I'm Melissa Starker for the Wexner Center for the Arts. Thanks for listening.